here I am standing up here, Dan, having to speak and talk and say stuff. Well, I guess it takes two or three times and then you get thrown up behind the pulpit. And it's good to see so many faces. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of scripture is just how everything is connected. From beginning to end, it tells a grand story about the faithfulness of God. And in so many uh, ways, God reveals himself to you and I as we study his word, his speech acts, so to speak. From the beginning, he speaks. And so it is. And likewise, as he speaks in his word, things happen. The teenagers are studying right now the book of Exodus. And in uh, Wednesday night, we're going through this Behold Your God study, the weight of majesty. And, and each week, it highlights something unique about God, about his character, about who he is, and just what that means for us, what weight that should bear on our lives. And so being a first Sunday, being the day in which we partake of the Lord's table, I thought it fitting uh, to speak on Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, and we'll focus on verses uh, 12 through 14, uh, but I'll read from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through verse 14, if that's okay with you. And it reads, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs, at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled with water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover in our text for the day. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Who were the original hearers of this passage? Why was this written? Why does Moses take time to remind the Israelites who are in the wilderness for these 40 plus years of this story? Is it just a story? Or is there some theological implications that he's bringing forth? Think about this for a second. For 430 some odd years, the descendants of Abraham dwelled in the land of Egypt. They knew one life. They knew a life of servitude. A life of slavery. They knew one king, whoever served as Pharaoh over Egypt. Their fathers had died. Their faith had died along with it. And out of nowhere, one of their own shows up and says, I'm going to liberate you. The God of your fathers has sent me. The great I am. The Lord God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, he sent me. There's a reason Moses says, well, when they ask me who sent me, what should I tell them? It wasn't because he was just nervous and wanted to constantly question God. But he knew just as much as you as I know, that many had no idea who the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob was. And so why would God, through his prophet Moses, take the time to walk through this? Why would he in scripture retell this story Ask your question, what do they need most? What do they know? Because in their mind, there are many gods. In their mind, the Egyptians serve one who brings forth the rain and another who brings forth the sun, one who brings forth the crops and another who blesses the Pharaoh. So many. And yet the one true God they don't know. So why? If not to reveal 
himself. If not to show not just the Egyptians, but also the children of promise who he is. Well, who is God? And how does God reveal himself to you and I? How does he reveal himself to the people of Israel? Is it not through his divine attributes that we study throughout the week's Wednesday night? Do we not see in this passage God's holiness? The fact that sin is not tolerated in his sight? Do we not see in this passage God's love in protecting his people? Do we not see his wrath against sin and idolatry? Do we not see his majesty put on full display as we study the story of Exodus? Every single attribute of God highlighted in a story that's all too familiar, and yet I think we miss it sometimes. When we think about this story, God brings forth a number of plagues on the people of Egypt. And he does so for the sole purpose of making his name known throughout the world. That's his stated purpose. And each plague shows his superiority over any and everything the gods of Egypt would even dare to claim to do. And then we come to the tenth plague, the taking of the firstborn of every household in Egypt. And he states clearly what that reason is because he is God because beside him there is no other he will show them who he is and so viewing this passage from two sides firstly what does it tell us about God And what are the implications of that for you and I? And secondly, what does it tell us about us? And how do we properly position ourselves within that context? Firstly, about God. We talked about his nature. What about his unchanging nature? This same God in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled displayed his love and mercy did he not when he covered them with skins he slaughtered an animal and he made it for them 
But what did Adam and Eve deserve? Their actions deserve death. The commandment said, do this and die, but do this and live. When it came to Abraham and his promise, God displays his faithfulness because the same people to which God sent the promise, right? Abraham's progeny, his descendants, are the ones whom God hears. Their cries, their calls out, and he provides. Not only that, God displays his jealousy because the Egyptians place up, above all, themselves and their gods and reject the one true God. God shows his patience because 10 times he sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. 10 times Moses and Aaron commanded what the Lord said. Let my people go. Allow them to go and worship me. And nine of those ten times, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh rejected the command of God. God shows his patience. But he also shows his wrath. Because ten times God followed through. Ten times God implements the plagues that he said would come. Ten times. Often in today's culture we'll have people who seem to want to say, well, God is some mean-spirited evil God. If that's who you serve, then shame on you. Did he really destroy these people? Did he really take the firstborn of everyone in Egypt? How could a loving God do such a thing? And yet we see simple requests. Let my people go. Let them go into the wilderness, them, their children, their wives, their livestock. Let them go and worship and offer sacrifice to me. Is that such a difficult request? Is that such a difficult thing for Pharaoh to allow? As though it was his place to allow it in the first place. Yet his heart was hardened against God. His Pride swelled up. And so God showed his wrath. 
in so many different ways, God reveals himself, not just to Egypt, but also to Israel. Because what is Israel seeing in all of this? God said this and he did it. He said he would turn the sea into blood and he did. He said he would send frogs all over the land and he did. He destroyed all the livestock and all of the fields with hail and plagues. He did what he said he would do. And when the 10th plague hit, when it was time for the firstborn of all within Egypt to be taken, God also shows himself to be a provider. He provides for Israel a lamb or a goat to be sacrificed. He provides them a way in which they can be preserved. He provides them with refuge. And he passes over all who took refuge where he provided. His love was demonstrated in that act. His love for his people, his love for his namesake. What does that say about you and I? What are the implications there of God showing his faithfulness, his love, his wrath, his patience? How are you and I to respond to that? How are you and I to see God in light of how he has revealed himself to us? Do you? When God says this, believe him? As we read in James, today when we say we have faith, does our actions reflect such faith? When we see a brother or sister in Christ suffering, hurting, or in need, do we extend the same love, the same compassion, the same patience? When we see a brother or sister in Christ in sin, struggling, Are we so quick to wrath or do we, like God, come back again and call that brother or sister back to faithfulness? If we who are Christians are to be conformed into the image of God, the image of Christ, if we who are Christians ought to live lives the way Christ lived, Should we not do the things 
that he has demonstrated for us to do. Even in one of the most important events in Jewish history, God, in his revelation of himself, shows us how we ought to behave. Reminds us that he is so much better, so much greater, so much more loving. He actually does provide. He is actually capable of doing all that he said he would. How did the Israelites respond in the wilderness? What did they say when they were hungry? What did they say when they were thirsty? Rather than turning their gaze toward God, they turned their gaze back towards Egypt. They sought the meat of Egypt. They sought the water of Egypt. Rather than turning to the God who showed himself faithful, showed himself more than able and more than willing to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. What do we see about ourselves? Do you think the Israelites deserve this Passover? Do you think the Israelites earned the right to be passed over? Were they themselves free from sin? They didn't know God either. Not at all. And were it not for his faithfulness, they too would have been destroyed. But what happened? What did the Israelites do? When God said to take refuge in your homes, to paint your doorposts with the blood of a lamb, to roast that lamb, to sit and gather together and eat. What did the Israelites do? They slaughtered that lamb. They painted their doorposts with the blood of that lamb. They took refuge within that house and roasted that lamb. They gathered together and partook of that supper. And they did it in such a way that they were to be ready at any time. Obedience displayed their faith. The evidence of their faith, the genuineness of their faith was shown by their obedience to the word of God. God does something here. He makes a distinction. He shows us that there are those who take refuge in him and in his word. And there are those who do not. 
he displays his mercy and his grace to those who take refuge and trust in him. And those who do not and reject his grace, reject his mercy, reject his word, we find judgment. Does any of this sound familiar? Or do we think this is all bound up into the Old Testament and none of this comes over to the new? God displays his judgment, his wrath. He pours it out on sinful man. But everywhere in which God pours out his wrath, his love is right next to it. His mercy is so prominent. And yet still, something as simple as coming into a house, something as simple as taking shelter, something as simple as being covered in the blood of a lamb is rejected. As simple as responding to his call. Why? Well, because there's not room for two gods. He can't be God and I be God at the same time. When he says that he will display his power and put to shame all the gods of Israel, he's not just talking about statues. He's not just talking about cats. He's talking about people. He's talking about Pharaoh. He's talking about everyone who places and exalts themselves higher than he is. Everyone who thinks they're in control. He puts on full display that you and I have no power. You and I can do nothing apart from him. Oh, you're so great. You're so wonderful. All of the world look to you and worship you, Pharaoh. But you can't protect your own son. You can't protect your own city. You can't provide drinkable water. You can't determine if it's going to rain or if it's going to hail. If the wind's going to blow. If the locusts are going to swarm. No, you can't do any of that. The reason you were so exalted, the reason you were so blessed over these years are because I'm the one that did it. For this reason, I raised you up. So that my name would be known throughout all of the world.
What do we find about ourselves in this passage? There's some wonderful things. The first is that we are completely unable to save ourselves. Just as the Egyptians were completely unable to save or protect themselves, we likewise are unable. We cannot rescue ourselves from the wrath of God. We are incapable. Two, we're not alone. It's not just us. What I love about this passage is that it said, well, for each household, grab a lamb. I don't have a lamb. <laughs> don't worry about that. You go and you grab the household next to you. And share in that together. So God does not leave us alone. Even in the midst of his provisions for us. Even if one individual doesn't have. You're not alone. His provision is actually all of his people. You and I, it's nice to think of the world as a, you know, my salvation. It's nice to think of the world as what God has done for me. Sounds really good. It moves our emotions. But yet God has blessed his church. He's blessed all of us. And when one of us lacks, the other lifts him up. If one is struggling, the other comes alongside and supports. If the arm, to use Paul's terms, isn't quite getting it done, start recruiting some auxiliary muscles. Isn't that right, Terry? And that arm moves. Those legs, they move because the body works together. Fellowship is there. But not just that. There's also implications as to how we are to live and fellowship. He says, belts fastened, sandals on, cane in hand, be ready at any time. At the drop of a hat, we ought to be prepared. No matter how long it may take or how quickly it may occur, we ought always be ready. God teaches us not just about himself, 
but also about ourselves and how we ought live in this. And then he says, not only, not only will no plague befall you, not only will you not suffer for your sin, not only will my wrath not be poured out upon you for taking a refuge, where I provide. But I want you to remember this. Have it ever before you look to this, celebrate this, appreciate all that I have done. And this was way back when. This was the time of Moses. And yet God's unchangeable nature is displayed as this shadow, this type gets fulfilled in the sacrifice of his only begotten, of his son, of Jesus Christ serving as our Passover lamb of his blood being spilled and us taking refuge in his sacrifice. God doesn't change. From the very beginning, he has made provision for us, recognizing our fallenness and yet still protecting us. The only distinctions made by God are between those who trust in him and those who don't. And the provisions are made for all. The offer goes out to the world. And yet that genuineness of our faith is displayed in how we respond. We look to Christ. We see him as that Passover lamb. We recognize that, yes, his blood was shed for us. Yes, we do, in fact, take refuge in him. And why? Why must we take refuge in Christ? Because judgment, judgment is real, and judgment is present. And yet God provides us his refuge. When we partake of the Lord's table, what do we partake of? Christ raises the bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body, which is broken for you.
he tells us that if we do not eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, we have no part of him. Why does he say something like that? Is he not alluding back to the fact that we are, in fact, celebrating him as our Passover lamb? Do we not see that we are to, in obedience, partake of his body? And his blood. Not just spilled for any reason. But to mark a new covenant. To mark us out. To separate us. To sanctify us as holy in his sight. Not a covenant in which we ourselves can boast where our works set us apart, but remembering that just as the Israelites could not save or protect themselves, we too are completely dependent on God to be our refuge, to shield us from the presence, the power, and the penalty of sin. And to put ever before us his goodness in doing so. Reminding us of his sovereign reign, of his love, of his grace. And showing us that we ourselves do not deserve it. The beginning of this chapter talks about us making this the center of our lives. Right? It says this will be the first month of the year for you. This is a priority. Is it any wonder we celebrate the Lord's Day on the first day of the week? That his resurrection on the first day of the week is now memorialized as we celebrate his broken body, his shed blood. As we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, in which we could claim every Sunday as Resurrection Sunday. Is it any surprise that we do it together and not alone? It's a fellowship meal. It's a meal in which you and I come together at the same table with no distinctions, no male, no female, no barbarian, no Scythian, no Greek, no Jew. We come together around the same table within the same refuge, covered by the same blood and partake of his broken body.
and his shed blood. And we get to celebrate this for all generations. He says, keep it forever. I don't know about you, but I had to think about what forever meant. And it doesn't just mean until Jesus comes. Forever means forever. We get to celebrate the goodness of God for all eternity. We get to rest and take refuge in him forever. Am I the only one who's excited about that? Everybody's just sitting there quiet. I guess maybe forever is a difficult word to understand. I don't know. It depends. Yes, it does. My son probably thinks forever is a mighty, mighty short time. But this is the God we serve. A feast that we look forward to. Until that day, our Lord does come and we sit at his table in fellowship with him and with one another and break bread and drink wine and whatever else he might have for us to do. I just know I'm looking forward to it. I pray you are too. Let us pray. Most gracious God and Father,